My good people, what's happening? What's going on? Everything good? All's well in your world? I really hope that's the case as you tune in for a little sports talk here on this week's edition of the J Reels Podcast. I am your host, J Reels. Really appreciate you taking the time out to not only download but get to listen to this podcast as I talk to you about what's going on in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, directed, and full effect. Lots to discuss here on this Tuesday, September 11th in the year of our Lord, 2018. For those who are listening for the very first time, welcome aboard. I really appreciate you having a chance to listen to what it is that I have to say with you know, as far as what goes on in the world of sports, excuse me. And for those who have listened to this program more than once, I welcome you back. Obviously, this is a day of remembrance here in this country. Again, September 11th, we certainly do not forget, and I certainly don't forget, that day, which actually falls on the actual day. It was a Tuesday 17 years ago today where the country was literally turned upside down. And just to pay respects to those who have passed and perished not only on that day in lower Manhattan, also Washington, D.C., as well as Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Certainly just to take not only a moment to be grateful and thankful to be alive, but also to know that just a tragedy upon epic proportions, as big as that was, to really think that that was the starting point of the way the world is today. You know, you can't go five feet without being recorded somewhere or ID'd or anything like that when you're going into a public building or an airport or wherever it may be. So, uh, yes, it was certainly a day that we don't like to forget, but of course we can never forget just all the images of what took place down in the World Financial Center, down by the Pentagon and what happened out in Pennsylvania. So, obviously paying respects to those who we lost on that day and uh, certainly a day we won't never forget. I was actually down there that day. For those who don't know, uh, I used to work right across the street from the World Financial Center. And uh, just seems like it happened yesterday, even though it's been 17 years, which is amazing. Just goes to show how time flies. And we all know what happened that day and the ensuing days after that. And just trying to decipher and wrap our heads around this whole tragedy, especially being so close to it. Uh, in New York City, and so many people affected, and I mean, the list goes on and on. But uh, again, a day of remembrance as uh, as a country, we will not forget what happened on 9-11-2001. And of course, lastly, in closing, in reference to that, uh, for all those out there who have lost loved ones, for all of the military, the NYPD, uh, the fire department, all of the first responders, everybody uh, who have been affected uh, during this tragedy, again, hearts, thoughts, prayers go out to those even 17 years later and pretty much for an eternity because that's something that uh, not only the city but this country will certainly uh, never forget. Well, let's get to the toy store department, which is the sports, uh, and not just sporting goods, which is the sports, as we have uh, quite a bit to discuss here over the course of the next uh, hour and change. We'll uh, recap the U.S. Open, a crazy weekend, especially with the women's side. With Serena Williams, I'll give you my thoughts on uh, how that shook down and took place and stole the spotlight from a one Naomi Osaka, who is the first Japanese player, men or women, to win the U.S. Open, and I believe to win a Grand Slam tournament. So that is a historic in its own right, but it was overshadowed by the behavior and what took place with Serena Williams. I'll also get into all the baseball. Yankees 
are at the back end of a road trip where they'll play the final two games against the Minnesota Twins, who they usually beat up on, as they're still in good shape. Tops in the wild card race there in the American League. We'll also go around the league in uh, Major League Baseball and break down a lot of the schedules for the teams that are contending not only for postseason positioning, but who could be on the outside looking in, who are trying to rally the troops here in the final three weeks of the season before we get to the hunt for Red October. But we're going to start off with football. That's right. Week one is now officially in the books. And just a quick programming note, I know that the program is usually on Mondays, but anytime the Jets or Giants are going to play a Monday night game, I'll be sure to have the podcast on Tuesday so we can get a whole broad scope of what the locals did. Now, if it's a Thursday night game, obviously we won't have a show the following day because we're just not going to dedicate a show to a Jet or Giant game after a Thursday night game. So anytime we have the Monday night game, the podcast will be up on Tuesday. And of course, if they do play on a Thursday, you'll hear my analysis that Monday, unless, of course, the Jets or Giants are playing on a Monday night. So with that out of the way, we'll start off with the game last night, which was an unbelievably Talk about a turn of events there in Detroit, especially after the very first play of the game. And you had Sam Darnold, the youngest quarterback since the merger, AFL-NFL back in 1970. Here he is. He goes under center for his first snap. And just as he rolled right, you kind of thought to yourself, it's like, okay, well, if he doesn't see anything there, where is he going to go? And the minute he threw the ball, the minute he cocked his arm back, and you just kind of had that feeling. If you've watched football for a long time, and you know that you have a rookie quarterback, that's the one throw that you just want to avert your eyes because you know his fate has been sealed. And sure enough, as that ball, just as it got out of his hand, I said, this is not good. And sure enough, it was picked off there, taken to the house. First ever pass out of Sam Darnold's hands, and you're probably thinking to yourself, oh boy, this is going to be the same old Jets. It's going to be a game where they're going to get blown out. This is uh, certainly going to be where the wheels start to fall off. And not to say you're going to question the quarterback because, again, He is a rookie. This is his team. But it certainly didn't bode well from that very first play. But who would have thought? Turn of events after that. And it wasn't just Sam Donald because as good as a game as he had, and he made some very good throws, especially the touchdown to Robbie Anderson, which he had coverage, you know, a guy draped all over him and somehow, some way squeezed that ball in where Anderson was able to corral it and punch it in the end zone for a score. But when you look at what the defense did in getting to Matthew Stafford, Interception after interception, you would think that Matthew Stafford was uh, Sam Donald. He was the rookie that just came out of uh, college. In this case, uh, he was a Georgia Bulldog. But amazing as this game unfolded with the returns, the long touchdowns, pick sixes, things of that nature, the Jets 31 points in the third quarter, which, believe it or not, is not their franchise record for points in a quarter. It was actually 34 points in that game. I'll never forget. It was against the Arizona Cardinals. It was a late Sunday and it happened to be on the same day. If you remember this, this is back in 2008, the final Sunday, September. Favre, I believe, threw six touchdowns. That was also the day that Anquan Bolden took that vicious hit in the back of the end zone where he had fractures in his face, if you recall. But even worse, if you're a Met fan, that was actually the day Shea Stadium closed down when the Mets lost to the Marlins and they had a shot to get to the postseason They were tooth and nail with the Milwaukee Brewers, and we all know what happened there. At the end of the game, Ryan Church flying out to deep right center field, and that went Shea Stadium. That went the Mets' hopes. Third straight year that they collapsed, in a sense, you know, going back to 06, but without 
getting to the whole Met history. The po- point is that the Jets have not had a 30-point outburst in a quarter since then, and it certainly didn't surpass the 34 points that they had in that game back in 2008. But if you're a Jet fan, you're giddy, you're doing handstands, you're doing cartwheels. All the Jet fans that made it out to Detroit, you see Gary Vernachuk, Gary, Gary V. He was out there with his crew, and it was just a celebratory victory. And all you can look at if you're a Jet fan right now is the promise of this young quarterback. Now, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. It's just one game. And we understand that one game in the NFL, whether you win or lose, it's either the sky's falling, season's over, or, hey, we're on our way to the Super Bowl. So we all know that we cannot predetermine what this team or what the Jets are going to do from here on out based on this one game. That's just not how it is. And even though they have the Dolphins upcoming this week, a home game, and then they go to Cleveland on a Thursday night where they have this span of three games in 11 days, I'm sure a lot of Jet fans right now are envisioning a 3-0 start. And as fans, that's fine. You can certainly look that way. But you can't get that far ahead. Dolphins, as we know, won a game on Sunday, although they played through a million delays. So you have two teams at 1-0 going at it. So one team is going to be 2-0 after this week. But if you're the Jets right now and you love what you've seen just in this first game, you only hope that the snowball will certainly just start to continue to build from here on out. And I'm sure that play is going to be rocking on Sunday. And the Dolphins, as you know, they're a team that's – I don't want to say they're in transition – but transition from this standpoint that they got rid of a lot of the veterans there, in particular in Damakon Su. They're trying to get a lot of the dead weight off and it pretty much rebuilding on the fly. So you don't know what you're going to see from this Dolphin team this week. This is a game that the Jets can win. I mean, it's – please. I mean, the Dolphins, are you going to be shaking in your boots? I understand they've been rivals for years. Uh, certainly not the days of Dan Marino and uh, Ken O'Brien. That's for sure. But at the same time – I'm sure you're looking at this game knowing that with the way the Dolphins played in their first game with the delays and not only that, with Mariota getting out, you know, going out of the game and then prevailing, you would think that if Donald could, of course, stay upright for four quarters and run the ball the way they did, Isaiah Crowell, who had a huge run in that game and certainly had a chunk of yards, it blew anybody's imagination, especially if you're a Jet fan, how well they performed in this first game. And the thing is, I thought back to the game in 97 – when Neil O'Donnell signed and pretty much the Jets were off and running on that 41-3 game in Seattle, that was the closest I could come to any resounding opening day Jet victory. And this one was even bigger because they were down 7-0 before you could blink and slowly but surely you know, started to chip away. And then, of course, when you got to the third quarter, it was 17-10 at the half. Lions came back to tie the game. And then from there, that's it. 31 points unanswered, took off. Stafford fumbling and bumbling, defense making plays, return game is in full effect, and now you want to know. With the Dolphins coming into your building to open up the home schedule for the New York Jets. Now, as far as the other New York team, the Giants, they didn't fare well as far as pulling out a victory. And as we said last week on the preview, This was, I'm not going to say it was a must win. I mean, please, not the first game. But it was an important game for them and important for them to win from this regard. You want the Giants to get out of the gate 
as quickly and as fast as possible only because of the, the first seven games and the way the schedule unfolds. And even Jacksonville, they're an AFC team, so a, a loss is a loss at the end of the day, but it's not going to affect them as far as the grand scheme of things in the division or in the conference. But because they had a game which they could have won, I'm not saying I'm going to sit here and say they should have won, but it's a game that they could have won, and knowing that they left plays on the field and certainly didn't execute in key spots led to a 2015 loss to a Jaguar team, as we all know, is from hunger on offense. Their best offensive player was out of the game before the half in Leonard Fournette. Blake Bortles didn't do much. I mean, he did much with his legs, which is surprising for a guy. When you look at running quarterbacks in the league, Blake Bortles doesn't come to the top or near the top. And to think that he's actually just as effective with his legs than his arm says a lot about the Jacksonville offense. But the Giants, like I said, had their opportunities. The one thing I worry about, and we all know that Eli's not a mobile quarterback. He's always been a pocket quarterback, and that's what you want in this league. You don't want him running. And even at his age, he was. we all know he was never a running quarterback. But my point is, is that you kind of wonder with this offensive line and with the way sometimes Eli either rushes throws or, you know, bad mechanics with, you know, going off his back foot. You know, you think about that pass that he had Odell Beckham in the back of the end zone where he overthrew it because he had faced some pressure. So, of course, he got rid of the ball. Now, granted, he threw it a little bit too hard. If it was timed right, I'm sure he probably would have gotten Odell in the back of the end zone considering he had a couple of steps on Jalen Ramsey. But you just don't like the way the season starts because you just look at it as like, wow, we had Saquon Barkley rush for 100 yards, granted 68 on one play, which was just an amazing play on him, amazing run. Then you have Odell Beckham who had 11 catches for 111 yards but didn't have that big game-defining play or series-defining drive or anything like that. You know, he didn't get much. You got a couple drops from Evan Engram. We all know about the offensive line. Can't put it all on Eric Flowers, although he's going to be the scapegoat and he's going to be the whipping boy here, as we all know. Now he's at right tackle. But you got to wonder what's going to happen with the Giants moving forward as far as them trying to see if they could get somebody to replace him, which we all know is hard in season. And right tackles and tackles, period, do not grow on trees. But this is something that they're going to have to address at some point because they cannot have play from the right side, from a guy who, let's face it, was a turnstile last year at left tackle, and if this is going to be the same this year, then what's going to happen? You also have a rookie guard in Will Hernandez. I understand you have Nate Solder to get Eli Manning's blind side, but funny as I said this at the preview, I was more worried about the Jet offensive line than the Giant offensive line, and after one game, it's in reverse. Because we all know that if the Giants are going to have a big year offensively, and we know the talent and the tools and everybody's there. But if they're not going to get any protection for Eli, you can forget it. Because despite the fact that Saquon Barkley gets 100 yards or not or moves the chains, whatever it may be, we all know at the end of the day it's going to end up in the quarterback's hands and it's a matter of them keeping him upright, protecting him. You know, on the defense, had a tough start. They couldn't contain Fournette. The secondary played phenomenal, but again, it is Blake Bortles at quarterback. And again, the Giants left plays on the field. I'm sure they're kicking and scratching and cursing themselves for not being able to get this win because now you go to Dallas on the road Sunday night, and for all intents and purposes, this is a must win. 
division game. Cowboys slow out of the gate. Only eight points in Carolina on Sunday. And when you look back at years past, you look at last year, them getting off to that 0-5 start. I'll never forget in 2013, they started 0-6. That's not to say that this year is going to start off that way. But when you look at that schedule and how it's all going to shake down, you know, they got to go to Houston after that. And Houston, although losing in New England, and they have a division game this week against Tennessee, you know they're going to be chomping at the bin. I believe that's their home opener. So Houston's going to look to try to get back into the win column any way, shape, form or possible, especially if they lose this game in Tennessee on Sunday. And then the schedule is just going to get harder after that. Eagles, Falcons, Panthers. I know I'm missing a team before they have their bye. And second half of the season is not too bad, but you certainly don't want to start two and five. And remember, you're in a loaded conference. An NFC where last year, as I said last week, three teams out of the NF, uh, NFC South came from that division to go to the postseason. And who knows, for all intents and purposes, you may have a repeat performance of that. Despite the Saints' ineptitude and on defense, and then, of course, the Falcons just playing ineptitude overall against the Eagles. So, big game for the Giants this week. This is a game that they're going to they, – I really feel that they have to win. Is it must win? I know I may have mentioned that a couple minutes ago. I'm not going to say it's must win, but this is – it's going to be as big as it gets. You don't want to lose division games. Division games on the road are tough. Cowboys, who knows – I mean, who knows how desperate they're going to play. We all know that they certainly underachieved there against Carolina. They have – other than Zeke, they have no weapons on offense – you know, Alan Hearns, who I know has had some success in this league, but, you know, nobody's going to be scared of him. You know, the Cole Beasley's of the world. I, it, you know the roster. So now here we are, just a game in for both the Jets and the Giants, and we have the Jets getting ready to write uh, their ticket to the playoffs, and then the Giants, sky's falling, and it looks like it's going to be another 6-10 and 10 season. But again, it's only one game, can't get crazy, can't get... I tell you. But that's the NFL. You know, you're not going to get that in baseball. You're not going to get that in basketball because the NFL is so, such a, every game is a big game. And when you don't get that first win of the season, it just feels as if, oh, it's going to be a long season. And until you get that first win, which will hopefully be this week for a lot of teams, then you can kind of take a big deep breath and say, okay, where do we go from here? So let's quickly go around the league. And you know what? Maybe I'll get to my game now. I usually want to save the Steeler games for last just to kind of break it down. But because it ended up in a tie, I don't know, 21-21 to the Browns, it almost feels like a loss. All I'll say is this, that the Steelers are lucky that they did not lose this game. Now, of course, a lot of people are going to say they should have won it with Boswell in the overtime with a minute 24 left, kicking the field goal, going wide left. First of all, it was a poor snap. Second of all, even with the poor snap and in those wet conditions, it was actually, you know, it wasn't an awful shank. And as much as Boswell's been money since he's been the kicker, listen, I understand you may want to get on him and say, oh, come on, he always makes those kicks. Well, you know, he can't make every one of them. I mean, he's made a ton of fourth quarter and overtime kicks in his career that, you know, he's bound to miss one of these. And unfortunately, he missed one at a time where the Steelers would have won and nobody would have even looked at the situation of them having five turnovers in the game at that time. Because remember, they had a sixth that was tacked on after that. And 
for everybody that could say that, oh, the Steelers, you know, got lucky. Well, yeah, they did. Because if they would have lost that game, and they let's face it, they should have lost this game. They should have lost this game toward the end of regulation. I don't know why they try to go for a home run there with Tyrod Taylor going to Josh Gordon. I understand they're trying to go for the kill. But, you know, it's the Cleveland Browns. They haven't won a game in two years. Why would you think about going for the kill there when you could just try to dump it off, try to get closer to the field goal range, and even if you're going to kick, try to attempt a long field goal, who knows? The game ends right there. Instead, typical Browns, they get picked off there at that juncture of the game. And then on top of that, they had an opportunity there in the overtime where Roethlisberger is going back to pass, and although at first it was called an interception but it was later a fumble, where the linebacker, Schobert, goes down to the 7-yard line, but if it wasn't for Miles Garrett, on a late-hit personal foul, they take the ball back further. So then what happens? Instead of having the ball in the 7 and pretty much either taking a knee or getting the clock down to 0 or to 1 second left where they could kick a chip shot, instead they're kicking a 40-some-odd-yard field goal, and thankfully T.J. Watt, who had four sacks in the game, gets a hand on it, and the game's over. And if you're the Steelers, you just got to look at it as, hey, you, you didn't lose. You didn't win. I know it's ugly. It's your first tie since 2002, and I'll never forget that game. That was against the Falcons, 34-34, where Tommy Maddox threw a Hail Mary at the end to Plexico Burris. He caught at the one-yard line and was stopped. But if you're the Steelers, you can't look at this game as a loss. It doesn't help you as far as division purposes are concerned because, again, if you're 4-1-1 one, and, one, and the Ravens are – Five and one, that's it. Ravens are going to win the division. Now, it does help if they're four and two and you're four, one and one, then obviously you're going to win the division. You win the tiebreaker. But you don't want it to get to that point. But bad as it is that you actually tie against an opponent in the division, that's where it could hurt you down the line. There's something to keep in mind there. And then, of course, the other story coming out of that game with no Levy on Bell, you had James Conner had just a phenomenal game for him. You know, 137 yards on the ground. Another 57 in the air. Uh, can he keep this up? I mean, it remains to be seen. But again, there was even talk afterwards about Le'Veon Bell, whether or not he should come back. And, of course, you got my take on it last week. I don't think they're going to trade him. I, I think they should trade him at this point because with the situation in the locker room, and, of course, we're not there to gauge day in and day out. We can only base uh, what we hear from reports. But all I got to say is this. If Bell's going to hold this out, and he can only hold out to week 10. After that, then he's not going to get paid. He's done. And as we all know, he's not getting paid. Eight, he's missing. Every game he misses is $850,000 that's not going into his uh, back pocket. So what happens here? Is it going to be a game of chicken where if Connor continues his production, does Bell kind of ease his way back into the mix and say, hey, I'm back, I want to play? Or if Connor, God forbid, gets hurt or his production starts to wane a little bit in the weeks to come, does Bell kind of laugh and say, ha, now this is where you need me? Remains to be seen. But if if you ask me, if and the Steelers aren't going to trade him or rescind his franchise tag, but if I was a GM, I would just lay in the weeds and wait and see what team I'm not going to say I could sucker for to get Le'Veon Bell because you're going to get a top player. And obviously once you trade him, they're going to have to sign him to a long-term deal. But I would certainly wait to see what I could get for him. And you could get a number one. I mean, listen, the guy's 
been all pro a couple of times, and if you're all pro on more than one occasion in this league, then you deserve a one. I mean, look what happened with Khalil Mack. Now, is Bell as impactful as Mack? They play two different positions, and granted that he does have impact at his running back position without question, but I would say, hey, if you can get a one and a three for him, uh, why not make the move? Let's say if you trade him to the Jets. Jets use a running back. I understand after week one, yeah, well, who needs Le'Veon Bell? But it's not a bad thought. All right, so that's it with the uh, Steeler game. And, of course, they have a matchup against Kansas City. And I guess we'll start there. Kansas City just had an explosion out in Los Angeles against the Chargers where they uh, put up 38 points. Pat Mahomes was throwing the ball over the lot. And, obviously, when you have a guy like Tyreek Hill who runs as fast as the wind, three touchdowns, including a 91-yard punt return, 38-28. Chargers, a lot of people thought that that could be their division to win considering the Raiders and the Broncos aren't uh, probably going to be in the mix, and the Chiefs, even with the new quarterback in Mahomes, figuring that there would be some growing pains with him. Again, it's only one week, but still looks like the Chiefs off and running, and they usually get off to good starts as it is. So we'll see how much that upholds. Kansas City in Pittsburgh this week, fascinating game uh, upcoming at uh, Heinz Field. Uh, I guess to keep it in the vision, we'll look at last night's game. And this some of these games I'm not even really going to get into. Rams and Raiders. Raiders are going to have a long year. We talked about it the other day with Gruden and trading Mac. You kind of wonder how long. I guess what's the over-under for Gruden? I, he has a 10-year deal, which is unfathomable when you think about it. $100 million. What are they going to do? They're going to wait to get to Vegas, then cut him when he has seven more years on his deal? That's not going to be the case. And it's just sad because the Raiders obviously are a cornerstone franchise in this league. We owe that they haven't had a lot of success since they won that or since they got to that Super Bowl back in 2002 against Tampa. They finally made it to a postseason two years ago. And think about this for the Raiders. This was a team that was so good two years ago that Derek Carr was pretty much in the lead for MVP. Derek Carr. Until he got his leg broken. And then we all know their playoff hopes just went right out the door. They lost in that first round to Houston. Connor Cook. And they pretty much haven't been heard of ever since. It's just a shame to think that that one play, and I believe that happened against, was it against Houston? Was it Houston and Oakland? I know the game was in Oakland when his leg was broken. I mean, it was against Denver. I don't recall, but it was late in the season. A lot of people thought Derek Carr was going to be MVP that year. It actually went to Matt Ryan at the end of the day. But ever since that, that play certainly changed the look of the franchise, and now look at where they're at. 0-1, they lose 33-13 yesterday as the Rams just pretty much did what they want. I know the defense got off to a pretty slow start with the Rams, but they certainly turned it on and obviously turned the vices that much more tighter against that Raider offense. And the uh, Rams, who are looking to do big things this year, uh, off to a 1-0 start. The Thursday night game, Falcons-Eagles, it pretty much was a, I tell you, it set football back 100 years with all the flags, and I know that's the theme pretty much at the start of the season where you have teams that are just not in sync, not playing enough in the preseason. So you're getting a ton of false starts. You're getting a ton of just uh, bad plays. It just These games seem to be forever. That game had, what, 20, uh, 26 flags between both teams. But it came down to that final play, fourth down, Julio Jones. Sounds familiar? You just think of the postseason last year. And the Eagles win their first game of the year, 18-12. Certainly not pretty. No style points. And then the Falcons, you know, have their head scratching again. 
wondering uh, what could have been as uh, they uh, limp out of Philadelphia with a loss just as they did at the end of the season back in January. The Bengals got off to a good start. Bengals beat the Colts where they were down by 10 early on. And even as the Colts were trying to take the lead there late in the game, they had the big fumble recovery. It went uh, 86 yards the other day, the other way. So the Bengals got off to a good start. And the Colts, I know I pre- predicted them to have a be a surprise team this year. Now, surprise in a sense that they're not going to you know make the postseason or go to the Super Bowl. But we all know it's Andrew Luck. And having the quarterback in the mix certainly could win a few games. But, yeah, there is barely talent on this team on both sides of the ball. So we'll see how that unfolds throughout the course of the year. The Ravens, 47-3 over Buffalo. What can I say? Nothing much to talk about here. Ravens just trounced them from the start. Ravens, as we all know, have a very good defense. Flacco's looking to bounce back from all the – Rumors of Lamar Jackson coming into the mix as far as being a starter is concerned. So Ravens and Bengals certainly uh, get off to good starts. In fact, nobody lost in the AFC North on Sunday, if you could believe that. As Obviously, with the tie, that helps between Pittsburgh and Cleveland. 49ers and Vikings, you finally get a loss there for Jimmy G. Viking defense was stout. Kirk Cousins uh, was solid. And Jimmy G, not the best day. Three picks, did have a touchdown, but they lose... Uh, in Minnesota, 24-16. Titans-Dolphins, as I mentioned earlier, with the delays, they went 27-20. Had two lightning delays. The game ended, I think, sometime after 7.30, if I'm not mistaken. So you have uh, the Dolphins, as I mentioned, coming up to MetLife to face the 1-0 Jets. Both teams 1-0. Uh, Houston and New England. Patriots pretty much in cruise control. Led 21-6. It was another key play in this game. It was first and goal where you had Deshaun Watson going back, and he or third and goal, excuse me. And he uh, overthrew the tight end just badly. He was open, and you see to the chagrin of DeAndre Hopkins kind of showing up to Sean Watson there on the field with his uh, reaction. But the Texans uh, did not come away, although they scrapped and fought back and tried to make it close, but they uh, end up losing 27-20. Patriots, the beat goes on with them. Brady with three TDs, and Gronk, of course, had a touchdown as well. The shocker of the day was the Saints and Buccaneers. And how the Buccaneers, and I get that Ryan Fitzpatrick has these games out of the blue every so often, but I would have never thought in a million years that Ryan Fitzpatrick would have had this type of game. And it's not as if he threw for a ton of passes, but he threw for 417 yards. The Saint defense, which had improved last year, especially with a bunch of the draft picks that they had, including Marcus Lattimore, their first-round pick, they would just cut the ribbons. Although Drew Brees, and a lot of that was in mop-up, I, he still had over 400 yards, uh, still had big numbers. But again, they were down 48 to uh, 24, I believe it was at one point, before they even made it close. They had two uh, touchdowns that uh, also needed two two-point conversions, which they were able to convert, but still not enough. They lose 48-40. So the Saints get off to a rough start as Tampa won to know surprisingly, even without Jameis Winston. Staying in the division with the Panthers and Cowboys. Panthers didn't do much. Neither the Cowboys, but the Panthers did just enough. 16-8 to down at Bank of America Field. So you wonder, hey, if Carolina could certainly get off to a good start in that division with Atlanta losing, and even just to think with the Bucs losing, or excuse me, with the Bucs winning and the Saints losing, uh, you would think that they'll uh, try to take some early control of the NFC South. So that, of course, remains to be seen. Then we have the Redskins and Cardinals where the Redskins got off flying, especially with uh, Adrian Peterson at the top. A lot of people thought that he could be 
a factor, not the factor, and he certainly was the factor this past Sunday in Arizona, and Arizona looks like they could have a long year. You know, a lot of people think that Josh Allen, who is the uh, – excuse me, Josh Rosen. Josh Allen's in Buffalo. Uh, Josh Rosen uh, should be the guy to uh, start these games and playing quarterback, but that's not the case at the the moment. Uh, we'll take a look and see how that unfolds in the weeks to come. But the Redskins under Alex Smith, 24-6, so they get their uh, season off to a rock and start there in the NFC East. And then you had the Sunday night game between the Bears and Packers, which Khalil Mack was a one-man wrecking crew, up 20 to nothing, interceptions taken to the house, tracks, uh, sacks, stripped sacks, fumble recoveries. I, the guy was just as phenomenal as you could possibly be for his first game in a Chicago Bay uniform, but it wasn't enough. Even with Aaron Rodgers out late in the first half, him coming back with just an incredible comeback, 24-23. And even if you thought that Mitchell Trubisky was going to be able to march them down the field to kick a game-winning field goal, you knew that wasn't going to be the case. But I believe the spotlight was just a little bit too big on him at that moment. And I'm sure the Bears at that point didn't think that at 20 to nothing, they certainly weren't playing to win. They were playing not to lose. And sure enough, that's how it turned out. So the Packers, game-time decision, it looks like, with Aaron Rodgers, although he said he would play, but a big game against the Vikings this coming weekend, which is uh, one of the highlight games. And you have a few good games this uh, weekend when you look at that one. Kansas City-Pittsburgh, if you want to say Giants-Dallas for those uh, looking here to see which team is going to be 0-2, especially here locally. New England at Jacksonville, a rematch of the AFC Championship from last year, of course, but this time it's in Jacksonville, not New England. So you got a few good games to chew on this week. And week two already, uh, upcoming here, Thursday night, where we have the Thursday night game. I know the Sunday night game is Giants-Dallas. The Monday night game is Seattle-Chicago. And as I look here for the Monday, uh, for the Thursday night game, I say Monday night. Thursday night game, as I look through the teams, why am I not getting this up here? I should know this. Oh, Bengals and Ravens. So that's also a good game that you have in Baltimore, which is pretty much our highlight games for week number two in the NFL. And thanks to New Orleans, as I mentioned before, I had them as my knockout pick this week. And I don't know what it is about New England. Uh, excuse me, New Orleans. I'm all over the map right now. Let's take a deep breath here, Jay Reels. I do not know what it is about New Orleans because many years ago I picked them to win week one and they got blown out. That of the RG3-led Washington Redskins. So it just goes to show you how long ago it was. But that would be the last time I picked New Orleans in a week one. I don't care if they're playing you know, Central Florida. I'm not picking the Saints ever again week one. And in fact, they have the Browns coming in this week. So could you imagine the Browns, a – tie which is to them was almost as, like a victory so imagine if they go down there and shock the world and beat the Saints can you imagine that 0-2 both games at home well we'll see how that uh so we'll see if that happens chances are I don't think that'll be the case I'm sure New Orleans will come out with all guns a blazing there in the Superdome on Sunday so that's pretty much your uh week one stuff no picks I know last week I was monitoring to see if I'd get a bunch of uh, people responding on whether or not they wanted to have me make picks every week, which is just be three picks. I'm not going to go through every game, but I didn't get any responses on that, so I'm not going to make any picks, and I'm certainly not going to have a knockout pick considering the Saints uh, pretty much beat me over the head uh, right before we are able to get comfortable here for an NFL season. So uh, there you have it as far as uh, week one of my picks are concerned.
All right, now let's turn our attention to baseball, where Major League Baseball is now down to its final three weeks. Now we're less than three weeks when you think about it, considering here we are on a Tuesday, September the 11th. As far as the Yankees are concerned, Yankees, I think they're going to be fine. I even said it last week when we did the show on a Tuesday after them losing that Monday game. Now remember, they did lose that series, uh, tough series, to the Oakland A's. Severino was no good in that game on uh, Wednesday. Then had a day off, and they went two out of three to Seattle. And then they played the Twins, who they always beat up. Gary Sanchez looks like he's trying to get his bat in order. He has had a couple home runs on this trip. We all know about his defense behind the plate, which he had an atrocious game when Severino pitched that night in Oakland. But again, if you're the Yankees, there is, to me, there is nothing to worry about, nothing to be concerned. You just want to get everybody back and healthy. I know Aaron Judge has been swinging a bat. You wonder what his timetable is. I'm sure at some point before the end of the year, they want to get him in the lineup. And as I said last week, and just to no surprise, he's the most important player on this team. I mean, it, it goes without saying. So the sooner that he gets back into the lineup, the better. Obviously, they're not going to push it. They're not going to rush it. But you would think that they want to try to at least get him in, I would think, for the series against Boston next week. You know, hopefully you get him there next Tuesday against the Red Sox. Well, we know the division is a – that's not going to happen. They're eight and a half games back. And as uh, we currently sit here today, they are still two and a half games – oh, I'm sorry, they're actually three games ahead of Oakland in the wild card for the first spot in the American League. And when you look at the schedules, and that was one of the things I didn't get to fully last week, Yankees, other than the Red Sox games, and who knows if the Red Sox game is going to mean anything, especially on the back end, the final three games at Fenway – but the Yankees are looking at two here in Minnesota. Then they have their final homestand of the year where they play three against Toronto, three against the aforementioned Red Sox, and three against the Orioles to close out the regular season homestand. Then they go to Tampa for four and then the Red Sox to close out the year where Oakland, they play three in Baltimore and three in Tampa. Now, I know that Rays fans, the six of you that are out there, I'm sure are hoping and praying that the A's slip up in Baltimore and that you could go ahead – and sweep and uh, try to get back into the mix here because Oakland goes to Tampa this weekend. Now they're seven and a half games behind in the wild card hunt, and they still have to get over Seattle, which no big deal. But uh, Tampa, who I'm sure right now they are with a wing and a prayer, hoping that they have a shot to get even closer to the A's this weekend. But again, they're playing. I mean, they're just flat out awful. Baltimore Orioles, what do they have? 102 losses. They're 41 and 102. So you would think Oakland will do business here over the next few days against the O's. So the Yankees, they're going to be hosting this wild card game, barring just a flat-out collapse at the hands of the dregs of the American League, whether it's Minnesota, Toronto, even Baltimore. I understand the two games, two series against Boston, but then you also have the Rays there for four down in Tampa, and we all know that the Yankees have not fared well down in the trop this year. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that's pretty much it. I mean, I wish there's more to report, more to say. I understand you want to get Severino, his ship righted as far as getting ready for a postseason, but you kind of wonder, if you had to start, if the postseason start, which will be three weeks from tonight, as a Yankee fan, who do you want starting that game? Do you want Severino or Tanaka, who's actually been pitching well recently? And we all know Tanaka, he is feast or famine. You know, you really get that in-between Tanaka where he could go out there, pitch six innings, give you three runs, six hits. With Tanaka, if it's six innings, it's either five runs, seven hits, three home runs, 
or you're less than that. Sometimes you get Tanaka that's three and a third or four innings. Or if you're going to get six innings of Tanaka, it's going to be one run, two hits, ten strikeouts. But I wonder if the Yankee fan is more confident in Tanaka. And I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, I'd rather Tanaka start. If you ask me, Severino's got to start that game. And I don't care if he gets bombed from here on out to the end of the regular season. He's starting that wild card game Tuesday night Yankee Stadium. And people could say, if he stinks up the joint, you know, they're going to look back to last year's the third of an inning against the Twins and say, oh, he wasn't ready. I felt my heart of hearts, even in that game last year, that the bright lights were going to be a little bit too big for him. I think this year will be different. I'm sure he knows the importance. Now, who knows? There's going to be a ton of pressure on him. And it's going to be interesting to see how he handles that pressure if and when he does start that game. So it's just something to keep an eye out here as we get closer to the end of this regular season. But right now, when you're looking at this, the MLB and just breaking down what's going on here with the pennant races, it's as simple as this. In the National League East, it's going to come down to those final 10 days of the season between Atlanta and Philadelphia. But the thing with Philly, right now they are four games back. The one thing that kills them, and this is as bad as it is, they have these games against the Braves. You don't expect them to win all seven of them where they have to go to Atlanta for four and then play the final three games at home against the Atlanta Braves. But sandwiched in between are four games in Colorado for Philly. So that's where it looks bad. If they were playing against the Marlins or even the Mets for that matter, it'd be a different story. But because they have the final 11 games of the season. Now, mind you, they have four against Washington here. They have a big homestand where they have four against Washington, three against Miami, and uh, three against the Mets. So when you look at it from that perspective, I'm sure the Philly fan will hope to have an 8-2 and two run or a 9-1 and one run to get to that four-game series in Atlanta. Because you'd want to be at least two back. You don't want to be four back going into Atlanta because that means you have to sweep. If you could be two back or even one back, even better. But the thing is, Atlanta, their schedule, they have at San Francisco these next two. Then they have Washington. Then they have St. Louis, which they're fighting for a wild card and even an outside shot for a division. And then you have the games against Philly, but then they go to the Mets for three games. And then they end up at Philadelphia. So much harder schedule for Philly. Atlanta, a little bit easier, though they have St. Louis there. But you would think Atlanta's going to hold off the Phillies and win a division. And we'll see how it shakes down, whether they're going to host in the first round or have to go on the road. But they, for sure, will have a bye. Obviously, they won't have to worry about a wild card. So Atlanta looks like they'll be in like Flynn. As far as the National League Central is concerned, that's becoming a logjam where the Cubs and Brewers are going at it in a series in Chicago where now the Brewers winning last night, are now a game behind the Brewers for the division lead. And as we all know, you want to get that division lead. It's imperative. You don't want to have to go to a one-game wild card, as we all know. So they have two more games between the Brewers and Cubs before the Cubs have to make up game against Washington. Then their schedule gets a little tricky, too. They had that make-up game in Washington. They come home, they play the Reds, which they should beat up on. Then they go to Arizona for three. Then they play the White Sox at Comiskey, or whatever the name of the field is. Then they have four against Pittsburgh and then St. Louis. And the game against Chicago, the White Sox, I'm sure there's going to be some pride there. So we'll certainly take an eye and take a look to see how the Cubs play here over the course of the next couple of weeks. As far as the Brewers are concerned, they have the Pirates after the series, Cincinnati, then they go to Pittsburgh at St. Louis, which is going to be tricky, and then Detroit. So this schedule is actually pretty easy. 
Which their only big con- big competition is going to be against the Cardinals after these two games against the Cubs. And then the Cardinals are home to Pittsburgh right now. They have four against L.A. coming in. Then they go to Atlanta. And then they finish up San Francisco, Milwaukee at home, and at Chicago. So the L.A.-Atlanta, those two series back-to-back could be telling as to where the Cardinals may end up here as far as either getting a wild card, which they currently have a two-game lead, and we all know that with the Dodgers coming in two games back of them, and also with the Dodgers in contention for a division, they have two avenues to kind of go for. But the Cardinals will certainly take a look at those seven games between Dodgers and at Atlanta to see where they fall as far as the NL playoff picture is concerned. And then when you go out west, Colorado, which currently has a lead in their division, a game and a half. And I failed to mention that the Cardinals are actually three and a half behind the Cubs. And they do play the Cubs the final weekend of the season. So we'll see how that unfolds. But as far as the NL West is concerned, you have Colorado up a game and a half and three and a half over the Dodgers and Diamondbacks respectively. As I said last week, Diamondbacks have just a rough schedule. They have these games against Colorado in Colorado for the next three days. They have to go to Houston for three. Then the Cubs come to Arizona, followed by Colorado and L.A. at home. So that's going to be some tough sledding for the D-backs. The Dodgers are in Cincinnati. We mentioned them going to St. Louis for the weekend for four. They come home to play Colorado and San Diego before ending at Arizona and at San Francisco. And in Colorado, they have these three against the D-backs. They have a long road trip where they go to San Francisco, L.A., and Arizona. So that trip could be telling. And then they come home against Philly and Washington. So I tell you, this is the beauty of pennant race baseball. And to me, in the American League, there's nothing to talk about because obviously everything is pretty much wrapped up if you're looking at New York and Oakland, but I'm to me, that's going to be status quo. The National League, not so much the NL East, although that's still a race, but what you have in the Central and the West is what makes it beautiful and having the extra wild card team because without all this, it, it, I mean, why bother? But now that you have those two wild card teams in the mix, that's what makes this all fascinating. Does St. Louis hang on to prevail and get a playoff spot where they will have to go to Milwaukee if the season ended today. Will the Dodgers not only possibly get that wild card spot, but if they could actually win a division. Same for Arizona. Philly's five back. Does Philly have enough with it? You know, and of course they have games against uh, Colorado coming up. They have a tough schedule. Now Colorado's not going to be in the mix for a wild card unless somehow, some way they get overtaken. So it's just a lot to chew on. A lot to digest, and certainly we'll be here for the last, now what is it, 20 days of the season before it's all said and done. So that's what we have here as the MLB season gets down to its final precious few days. All right, a couple quickies before we sign off. Uh, First thing, uh, as far as college football is concerned, I didn't talk about that earlier. There wasn't much to discuss this past Weekend, I know you had the one uh, key game in primetime. This week you have a few good games uh, if you want to look at as far as the top 25 is concerned. LSU and Auburn, that's going to be your vintage CBS 330 game. And then your two night games will be, you have number 17 Boise State going up against number 24 Oklahoma State. And then you have Ohio State ranked number four in the country going up against TCU, number 15. And this will be the last game without Urban Meyer before he gets back into the mix 
the following week, which they'll play Tulane. So his suspension will end as of this past or this coming Saturday's game, and then you'll see him from here on out there on the sidelines for the Buckeyes. And that's pretty much going to be your college this week. And as I said last week, colleges are going to get interesting until first or second week of October where you start incorporating the conference play, and you'll start seeing a lot of those games. You know, Ohio State, Penn State, Red River Shootout, you know, Oklahoma and Texas. You know, you'll get games like that before you get deeper into the college football season where you'll get Ohio State, Michigan, you get USC, UCLA. You, you get all the particulars, all the rivals, et cetera, et cetera. And then one last thing before we sign off, you had the U.S. Open there on uh, over the weekend where going back to Friday, you had the unfortunate retirement of the tournament with Rafael Nadal. That was tough because he went up against Juan Martin Del Potro, and a lot of people were looking at another Nadal-Novak Djokovic final, but it wasn't meant to be as he had to retire due to his, uh, his knee issues. So you had Djokovic and Juan Martin Del Potro there on Sunday where Djokovic wins in straight sets. Djokovic, as we all know, he has just been a dominant player in the men's circuit for quite some time. And it's only been a carousel, whether it's Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, or Novak Djokovic. I mean, it's either one of those three guys that seems to win. And they've just been dominant in this era. We all know Federer is an all-time great. Same for Nadal. Although Nadal has pretty much made his bones on the clay at the French Open. I mean, what has he won? 11 of those? And granted, he's won how many titles? He's won about 14 or 15 titles. Yeah, I mean, he's up there. Ranked with the best. But... Uh, the Joker, Djokovic wins his U.S. Open, which is the final Grand Slam tournament, uh, Grand Slam tournament for the season. And Djokovic, who won his third U.S. Open now, certainly goes off into the sunset, winning both Wimbledon and the back two tournaments here for this 2018 tennis season. But all the talk was what happened on Saturday late afternoon with Serena Williams in her match against Naomi Osaka. And it's a shame that it actually came down to that because here you have a 20-year-old girl in Osaka representing Japan, and I know for sure it's the first Japanese men or women to win the U.S. Open, but I believe it's the first one to win a Grand Slam. And it gets overshadowed by Serena and her behavior, which was... Looking back, it was certainly out of line because it took a lot of the shine off of what these, you know, what Osaka did. And listen, I like Serena Williams. I'm actually a fan. And, you know, I don't have the pom-poms out for her. I'll say that, you know, but I'm a casual supporter of Serena. How could you not? I mean, she's just been timeless in her pursuit for even what she's done in women's tennis, not only just being an American, African-American at that, but at the same time, You know, for her to put the blame on the umpire the way she did, and maybe some of it was warranted, but to the point where she had to bring in gender, that, oh, if I was a man, this wouldn't have happened, so on and so forth. Well, it has happened. It's happened at the French Open with Novak Djokovic. It also happened with Nadal, where they had to take points off for you know, a lot of the, the, the codes of the behavior that were on the tennis court throughout the course of the match. And if that's happened, and that's happened recent, 
That happened in 2017. I actually happened once earlier this year. So for Serena to use that card was a bit of a stretch, to say the least. And I understand that, you know, she's looking at it as she's trying to win a title. And she's going to try to use every advantage. And who knows if it was gamesmanship on her part to try to get Osaka's game off because she probably knew that, oh, man, I'm overmatched here. And for Serena Williams to admit that, I'm sure it would be very hard. But at the same time, when you know it's not your day, it's not your day. And sometimes you'll attempt to do anything to try to throw the other person off, especially in an individual sport like tennis. You know, and a lot of it was because of the coach on the side, which, listen, I understand their rules and you can't make any eye contact, you can't make any hand gestures, none of that. And I believe Serena from that regard. And even though the manager came out and he was pretty much all but admitting that, hey, you know, I'm not trying to coach her, but at the same time I am trying to coach her. So it kind of makes you wonder whether or not he's, you know, he's stretching the truth or is Serena just being ignorant or whatever it may be. But what it did was it took a lot of the shine off of what was a historic match for, let's face it, someone who before this tournament nobody knew about. I certainly didn't know about her. And I'm grateful and thankful to, you know, to anytime you witness history in sports, you have to cherish it. And this was one where, unfortunately, it's not going to be remembered as the Naomi Osaka winning the 2018 Women's U.S. Open. It's going to be more about Serena Williams and what she did during the match, which is going to supersede anything that Osaka did on the court for her to win this title. And again, I like Serena. But that certainly was uncalled for, and it certainly was a situation where you would only hope that it would have been handled a little bit better. And even if Serena, even at that point, in close to defeat, would have just taken it as it was, and that's that. And maybe said something afterwards. But we saw how it unfolded. We saw how it went down. And unfortunately, that's going to be the one thing in all the year reviews for 2018. That's going to be the main highlight coming out of that, as opposed to the girl for her country, for this tournament becoming historic in its own right. And sadly, that's what's going to be remembered more so than Osaka holding up her first ever Grand Slam tournament victory. All right, so that about wrap it up. Look at that. A nice, tidy 55 minutes. We'll try to squeeze this in for an hour because you know I got to do my plugs at the end here. Uh, Once again, thanks for everybody for downloading, listening, tuning in. Please share this with all your friends, family, etc. Hey, even if you have some adversaries that are out there that love sports, all you got to do is just uh, send that via email or send them a text or whatever it is. Uh, I would greatly appreciate it. Of course, I'm being silly. Now, the uh, J Reels podcast, of course, you could uh, get a chance to listen to on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast from. Make sure you subscribe. So you'll be up to date. You don't have to worry about, oh, hey, wait, when is this coming out? Or No, once you subscribe, it'll get right to your phone. And it's just a matter of a few presses, people. A few swipes, presses, whatever you want to do. And make sure when you do that, also leave a rating. Give me whatever you want. Be honest. Give me five stars if you wish. Four stars, whatever it may be. I would greatly appreciate that. Because that's only going to attract more people in the sports podcast universe to get a lot of publicity. And not only that, but it'll also generate a lot of buzz where in turn that would also increase the popularity of the show and hopefully 
will increase more guests in the days and weeks to come, which I'm uh, certainly doing my best behind the scenes. But with that being said, you could also check for any updates regarding the program, whether it's on my website at jreels.com, J-A-Y-R-E-E-L-Z, on Instagram, jreels, on Twitter, jreels1, just a number, and on Facebook, which is the page, the jreels podcast. If you want to send me an email, or of course you could shoot a DM or anything to that like on any of my social media platforms, but if you're old school and want to just send me an email, whether it's any uh, compliments, some uh, criticism, praise, whatever it may be, that's the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. And once again, please, people, just get the word out as I am uh, independently not only hosting but also writing and producing this program. Whatever assistance I get from you guys, it's forever grateful and forever indebted for you guys. So uh, once again, I do appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. Many thanks, or as I like to say every now and again, thank you twice, more than once. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.